Hey everybody, it's the Flame Station podcast uh, coming at you for this week. It's going to be episode three. Um, tonight uh, we're recording uh, just after the win over the Toronto Maple Leafs and uh, we're minus Ryan Pike this this week, but we've got uh, our managing editor, Ariane over. How's it going? That's okay. It's going good. And uh, we've also got the quiet but always astute and knowledgeable Christian Tiberi. What's going on, buddy? Not much. And uh, I'm Mike Fail. And uh, so we got a, a loaded show for you guys today. Um, we're going to kick it off with the obvious thing that everybody's talking about, which is Dougie Hamilton and the Toronto Maple Leafs and all of those rumors. And uh, it was a busy day on the site. Ari had a stellar article attacking the whole concept of Dougie Hamilton getting dealt and the rumor machine that is, I guess, the media itself. And uh, Dougie had a pretty great game tonight. And I guess in general here, it... it Brian Burke's comments today were pretty, pretty much on point with what we would expect. But what do you, what do you guys make of everything after this whole day is over? He's saying, like that's it. He's saying, stop talking about him getting traded. Stop making stupid proposals that don't even meet the Flames' needs. He's a Calgary Flame. He's going to be Calgary Flame for quite a few years yet, and that's that. It's not happening, especially with the way he's been playing the past few weeks. I mean, he, he, um, it's amazing what you can do when you switch out Nicholas Grossman for Mark Giordano. But, yeah. And not only that, but like that, the pairing itself, they're pretty much with every line, like that Mark Giordano and Dougie Hamilton pairing, like they're just out of this world. I think, they're, I think they finished um, around like 58% after the, other, the, the game the other night. Um, and they're steadily becoming one of the league's best pairings. And, and realistically, like the, if we look at the 132 minutes that Yoki uh, Yoki Paco played with Dougie Hamilton, it's basically a wash at this point. Like we were just seeing Dougie Hamilton tow around one guy, and of course it's going to make him look a lot worse than he is. And then, uh, he, like if we look at his performance tonight, uh, he had three shot metric, or I guess individual shots on net. Um, two of them actually went on net, and he was stellar in distributing the puck around and. I just don't understand um, how we're like it's 2016 and we're still um, as a, like a league based you know a fan base in this you know this league that if a player struggles we can automatically assume that they're going to get traded or that they're on the outs like it just doesn't make any sense it seems incredibly ira- uh, like reactionary like this whole concept that the Flames are in a position of strength if they were to hypothetically trade them it just doesn't make any sense especially when the future, you know, in Oliver Shillington and Rasmus Anderson and Adam Fox, uh, they're years away. It's just incomprehensible. Remember, Brandon Hickey was the surefire future, too, and uh, it doesn't look quite as certain anymore, so you don't know what's going to happen in their careers. Like, yeah, they look good now, but Hamilton is 23 years old, and I know we say this a lot, but it needs emphasizing he's 23. That's still very young. And he's going to hit 300 NHL games played this year. Like, he is a unicorn. Because that doesn't that's not common. I think we skip over that fact a lot. Like, oh, well, he's an established veteran now. Yeah, and he's 23. He's still developing. He's still going to get better than he is right now. He was taken ninth overall for a reason. You don't throw that away unless you're stupid. I don't know how to say this. The uh, previous Flames future defenseman, Tyler Wallace, like, he's also 23. Like you just don't get guys that good as Dougie Hamilton at that young. Rekulak is six months younger, and we've liked him generally when he gets in the lineup. I'm not sure why he isn't lately. So he's six months younger, and his NHL career is 
just starting. And this is also a player that survived in Boston under Claude Julian, who really didn't like the guy and didn't really find a use for him, even when he was playing on the top pairing with Zidane Ochara and towing Zidane Ochara around. And like he's he put up career numbers last year despite an incredibly slow start. And he's probably going to, like, incredible to say this, but he's probably going to break that total this year as well because Mark Giordano isn't playing at the level that we're used to and TJ Brody is not playing at the level that TJ Brody has to. And, you know, right now Brody's playing in a pairing with Dennis Weidman and he's having to tow Weidman around a bit, so we're going to see some diminished results there. But, like, this team is incredibly rely- like reliant on what Dougie Hamilton can do. And he... Everybody's been talking about it. You know, Andrew Berkshire wrote a piece on Sportsnet. We've written several pieces. It doesn't matter who you're talking about when it comes to like the, the Twitter Twitter world and you know hockey writers. Everybody seems to be able to acknowledge that there's value in him. And you know, Flames fans finally have come around on him. Uh, there is that I don't want to say like a period, but it's been a pretty contentious you know first year for him as a flame where fans, you know, they don't think he's playing hard enough. He plays hard. And then he goes out and plays a game where he's playing pretty hard and he takes a penalty and they're like, Oh, well, he's got to manage his strength and, you know, try and limit it. And it's like, well, you, there's no healthy medium with a lot of those people. They, they never will be satisfied with what he can do. And meanwhile, he's, you know, effectively the best defenseman in terms of driving shot metrics and driving play. And the goal differential problem that people had cited early on saying, oh, he's a liability in his own end, that um, seems to be dissipating because he's being put in a position to succeed as opposed to a position where he's not able to play to his strengths. Small handful of other things I want to note. Brody doesn't even have a real defense partner at this point. So if you deal Hamilton, then you're crippling Giordano too. Hamilton currently has 12 points, which doesn't sound like a lot. It's tied for second on the Flames in general with Sam Bennett. Michael Froelich is the only one with more with 15. So he's a top scorer on this team right now. Uh, Second on defense is Giordano with nine points. And Hamilton is officially in the top four for average ice time per game on the Flames. Giordano, Brody, and Weidman, for some reason, are above him. He's also taking the most shots out of anyone. He's got 68. Next is uh, for league with 60. Yeah, and Giordano was 58, so it's like, um, <laughs> oh, back onto 62. Wow, that's different. So this is basically like, and I know some people will be like, oh, he's a defenseman. He should be focusing on defense. You need offense from your blue line, too. He's, he drives play north. Yeah, he drives play north, which is pretty much the best thing you can do. He skates well enough that he can get back most of the time. And on top of that, he's elite offensively. Yeah, this belief that defensemen need to be this rough and tumble and gatekeeping, crease protecting uh, entity that can't be out muscled, and you know they're they're as big as Shea Weber and they have a bomb of a shot. It's just asinine because Shea Weber is a unicorn. Like there's only one of him. There's only one Zidane Ochara. There's only one Duncan Keith. But if you look at all of these elite defensemen, you know they put up offensive numbers and great shot metrics, and they're such a vital part in you know primary pass assists and little things like that that we're starting to see trickle out of the stats community. Is that defensemen of that ilk? They're so vital to the transition game, and that's what a defenseman should be in this modern NHL. It's like you're not going to get anywhere, and you're not going to get your forwards up into play unless you have a defenseman moving the puck with them. Like it just doesn't. It's unfathomable to rely on a forward group and in the past, we, we'd seen that, where the forwards were typically having to drive play themselves, and they were really stifled. And um, this kind of flows into what we want to talk about next, I think, which is Glenn Gulletson. And, you know, we've approached 
well over the quarter mark, but we're starting to see a, a bit more results with him. But you kind of have to give Glenn Gulletson credit. Like the system is slowly coming together, and we're starting to see the strengths of Dougie Hamilton and Mark Giordano starting to come alive a little bit because of that. Um, and even to some extent, like TJ Brody has his moments in the last few, you know, few games where they're the guys breaking out of the zone and carrying the puck. And it's something that's incredibly vital to whether or not this team is actually going to be on the upswing or if it's just going to be a little blip where we see, you know, a slight, you know, slight improvement and they kind of regress a little bit more. But what are you guys thinking about Glenn right now? I am, uh, I'm firmly at this point in the let's keep giving him a chance category. I mean, he hasn't been great to start his coaching career with the Flames. Um, Stepping in is a bit difficult. There have been a number of inexcusable errors along the way, like from the very first game when we saw those defensive pairings. We're like, what the hell are you doing, dude? Um, and a number of things that we were able to recognize that you can make the argument, oh, well, we've been watching this team for years. We know them, blah, blah, blah. But we don't get paid to focus on them. That guy does. So a lot of his rough start is on him. But things are kind of starting to fall into place. They're not really there yet, but we're, we're slowly inching towards it. And I'm at the point where um, I think he, you give him the rest of the season for sure. And no matter how, well, not no matter how badly they flare out. If they flare out like spectacularly, you can him probably. But if they keep on with this steady pace, even if they don't do well enough to really truly pull themselves back into playoff um, conversation... And they end up with a top pick. I think um, the way things are starting to come together, you have them start for next season too. I think like um, just the way they've been playing without Johnny Goudreau is just it just kind of showed how Glow uh, Golden has improved because there's many ways like a coach could go wrong without having Johnny in his lineup. Like I can't imagine what Bob would do to remedy that situation. Like the thing that's got me back on the Golden train, or whatever you want to call it, is that he's just he's kept it steady. He's Figure it, I do agree with like the uh, inexcusable, like unforced errors with uh, with uh, Grossman in the lineup and Hamilton on the third pairing. But he's quite slowly he's like figuring it out. He stopped trying to put his crazier ideas on the team, and he's just starting to normal starting to normalize out. And just it's been good over the past few games. I think Ryan had a good point uh, last podcast about. I'm not sh- sure if that was if we actually left it in there, but he. Um, like recently, they've been trying to grind out wins and like try and get the system really in place before like fully getting it out and developed. So maybe like game fifty, we'll see. A, maybe we could we should see like um maybe we should maybe we can see like a system in full full effect, full force. I'm kind of excited for that. Yeah, like up until elements of this road trip, that you started kind of piecing together, and there were little signs along the way that. Glenn kind of had figured it out a little bit. This team was in a position where they weren't giving up too, too many shots. Like I think they were among the top 10 teams in just shots allowed at five versus five for quite a while. And it's kind of fallen off a bit because of the road trip and obviously Goodrow's injury and the little things like that. And we know like the power play itself is 90% Dave Cameron, but the, like the five versus five work, like we are starting to see, you know, when the, when this team isn't falling victim to score effects in a game, like when they score two goals in you know 14 seconds and a goal to end the first, they're they're finding ways to actually you know carry the puck through the zone, uh, all three zones in some cases, and they're trying to make 
a lot of, I guess, intelligent passes, like you, you're starting to see these elements that we didn't really see under Bob's regime because it was, you know, a very, you know, grinded out in the other end and then hope to get a break. And there, there is some structure that's being formed. And obviously people might believe that it's impacting the, the performance of Sean Monaghan and some of the other offensive guys, but you, you kind of have to finally teach those kids how to play in all three zones. And even if it is going to diminish Sean Monaghan's impact a little bit, it's going to make him a better player. It's going to make him the the kind of player that this team hoped he would be, which is a, a center that might have some two-way upside. And I really like what Glenn has done with the forward lines, especially the 3M line, because you're, my first thought when, when they, they started really piecing it together was that he was going to break up you know, what made that line great and put Kachuk on a different line because, you know, he was scoring goals and, you know, he would warrant more more exposure. And he kind of just gave the line itself more more use, uh, more time on ice and put them in the situations that they were succeeding in, which was a lot of shutdown rules and a lot of things that you wouldn't expect that you would put, you know, an 18-year-old kid in the NHL through. And he seemed to excel. And one of the, the other little things that I really enjoyed was, you know, obviously the... I guess a resurgence of what Matt Stajan could be. Like he's finding these really obscure opportunities to maximize value in every way he can, even though the team is have you know struggling to create some you know some goals here and there, and that's going to balance itself out. There are some pretty pretty enjoyable things about what Glenn is doing. It's just lost in the fact that they they struggled early on, and they're slowly getting it you know on the right track. Just a thing I wanted to mention about Dougie Hamilton before he transitioned, but because you brought up Matt Stajan and how Glossus was using him, like when you see uh, Dougie and Giordano out with the fourth line, you can really see what Dougie is doing much better than what he's doing with any other with the first line or whatever you want to call the first line. The opportunity to be a transition player, like the one play I spotted on Twitter. Uh, that I posted on Twitter tonight um, that we'll try and get into like the post game members or something. He just, everybody was in position at the right spot. Uh, he was in the right spot. Uh, Giordano was perfectly aligned to where if the play got past either of them, they could, you know, swoop into position and break it up. But he held it down. He broke up his own entry and immediately had the fourth line ready to go to receive that pass. And they spent a good, you know, 30, 45 seconds just in the offensive zone, generating shots, finding any opportunity they could to try and get pucks on net. And he he has this weird, like, this weird ability to draw uh, defending players to him, even attacking players. Like, they just, they gravitate to him because they want to try and suppress him because he's, you know, he's got a great shot and he can put the puck on net. And he did that quite a bit tonight where he would draw in Leaf defenders to him and then quickly pass it off to Mark Giordano or put it on the boards or just put it on net. And I think that like that's something that you can't really ignore when it comes to, you know, you know, it's an incredible asset for a team, especially in the same way that, you know, Johnny Gaudreau draws attackers to him. It's just, yeah, it's something I've noticed over the last few games and it was really prominent tonight. So I'm looking at here is um, when we talk about the future of the Flames, we should be discussing their future core. We've got Kachuk in there. Hamilton has um, pretty clearly cemented himself in that. Um, he's 23. I, I know I keep saying that, but he's young, and most of the Flames' core is really young, and he fits in perfectly right with that age group, right with the talent. Um, here's a question, though. Not necessarily core player, but just a really strong complementary player. 
until maybe he actually gets the ice time he is deserving of because Michael Furlan fits right in with that age group too. And he averages 11 minutes a game. That's great. Yeah, Mike Furland has uh, 10 points this year, which is tied for fourth in team scoring. And he plays 11 minutes a game. Brought this up on the what would you do Wednesday. Uh, like, what does he have to do <laughs> to get that ice time? And right away, what does he do to kind of get himself going tonight and get the team going? That assist to just get the Flames up one nothing to uh, the Freddie Hamilton goal, like clearly showcases why he's the kind of guy that you want in some capacity in your roster. And the abnorm, like the abnormality there is, you know, he's getting fourth line minutes, and the entire time he's on the ice, he's finding a way to be productive, like at even strength. So five versus five this season uh, through twenty five games, fifty two point nine eight percent Corsi four. He's got a positive shot differential, shots for so 50%. Uh, his Fenwick, 50%. He's almost breaking even on what Corsica defines scoring chances. He's slowly righting the wrongs of the goal differential that a lot of this team's impacted on. And he, he's just like the, he's like the perfect middle ground for the traditionalist crowd who likes their, you know, their heart and soul players and gritty guys that can, you know, play those tough minutes and, make you know make an example of the opposition and meanwhile he's putting up fantastic underlying numbers that not a lot of people would have expected and like what do you it's impossible to imagine that you know two years ago when he really cemented himself as his force in the playoffs against the Canucks that he would be this beast of a guy who can drive play and uh, he makes his he makes his line mates better he's certainly making that fourth line look better with uh, Hathaway and Hamilton his line mates don't deserve him and it's, like, it's not an insult to them. He's just better than them. He's only played more than 13 minutes at 5v5. Yeah, that's 5v5, like once this season. That's just kind of not Jeez. the way you should use him. I've said in my post-game members after the Islanders game, that's just like, he's far and away better than like the people he's paired with. Uh, like All respect to Freddie Hamilton and Garnet Hathaway, but like just like you can just see Furland way more often than you see them. And you can see him like do everything else, everything like just everything on that line. I don't know when he's gonna get like his, if he's ever gonna get that top six spot. Like especially when with Johnny coming back soonish. I've always wanted him to be tried again with Monahan just because he seems like a fit uh, with Monahan. They even get him going for once. I liked um, Kent's suggestion in the "What Would You Do Wednesday" with um, uniting the All Mike line and trying Kachuk somewhere else. With an additional fact that um, Kachuk said he can play right wing. We don't, the Flames don't really have right wingers. So why wouldn't it, like, he's established himself, he's an NHL player. Why wouldn't you see if he can play on the right side? That would solve a huge hole if he can. Ryland also plays right side. I never, uh, have they ever tried that this season yet? Or has he always been on the left? He's been on the left this year, but he was, it was, last, last season was just bad. Like, yeah. I know he was bare, I know he was shooting at 3.3%, but keep him on the left. The handedness thing was a really big problem with him last season because he would always break in and he wouldn't have a forehand pass or a for, uh, or anything like that. He would always break in across the middle or try and get a pass and it just wouldn't work for what, you know, like the fact that he's a left-handed shot. So it's hard not to imagine him as a left winger now just given what he's been able to put up in 26 games this season and in such a limited usage. 
I never realized it that Kachuk could play right wing, and I'm kind of curious because you could do some really interesting combinations if you really wanted to get players going. Like you could, you could do like a Monahan on the left wing, Sam Bennett center, you know, Kachuk on the right wing. You could do so many different variations, and it's such a wonderful avenue that you could explore. Yeah, at the draft, Kachuk said he could play all three forward positions, and um, I brought that up to True Living and asked him like, where do you see him playing? And he's like, oh well, we'll see. So, I mean, you, you don't have right-wingers. You have Michael Froelich, and you, I guess you, in theory, have uh, Troy Brower, and you have Christopher Stieg playing out of position. Like, just just try Kachuk on the right side and bump Furland up to his fellow Mikes. What could it hurt? So, outside of the wax poetic that we seem to go on nearly every two days with Michael Furland, uh, we've, we're finally greeted with the opportunity to see what uh, former first-round pick Mark Jankowski could do at the NHL level. He got his opportunity the other night, and uh, he did it in some pretty limited minutes. But I wasn't too too you know disappointed with what he could do. He had a couple of really great shifts and a couple of really great plays uh, breaking out of the defensive zone. And I I think if anything, if that play went as well as we could have expected, maybe we we were hoping to see him you know tonight, and we didn't unfortunately. But uh, what did you guys think about? Uh, the former first-round pick, a.k.a. the future Joe Newendike, the future of the Flames center? Well, I'll start off. Uh, I thought he was all right for one game where he didn't really see much. He just existed as a hockey player for about the nine minutes he played, and he was all right. Um, I don't know what other people were expecting, if they were expecting an Austin Matthews, or if they were just expecting uh, Bambi on skates. That metaphor doesn't work too well because now Brian Burke said... Hamilton skates like a deer, but I hope you, I hope I hope you get it. Right now, though, I wouldn't say he's much of a upgrade of Freddie Hamilton could do or what Matt Stajan could do. And like those are the two guys. He's if he's fair enough, if he's far enough in his development, he should be replacing. So I know it's not the time to plug things, but I'm kind of writing an article right now about how they should just send him down, let him get some playing time, like actual first line minutes, and just like bring up Lyndon Vay and sit him in that 13 spot. Yeah, I didn't think he'd be up this early anyway to begin with. So, I mean, great. You got your first NHL game out of the way. You weren't a total, you weren't a failure in the slightest. That's good. Build on that. But uh, may, maybe not at this level quite this early. Especially, like, <clears throat> he doesn't really address any any major needs for the Flames right now. Like, what they need is, first off, a right wing. Then they need someone in the bottom six left wings. And then it's just, you already have four centers, assuming Bennett ever moves back. But So, like, right now, just send him down, let him play 15 minutes a game and just have him be successful somewhere instead of just watching them from the press box. Especially because just, like, you kind of only have one year to figure out what Jankowski is. Because, like, if he turns 23 and isn't an NHLer, like, it's kind of just his probability of ever making it goes down and just his value goes way down. So, you know, just let him, let him grow. Let me put it this way. He's not Matthew Kachuk in that he has not forced himself onto this team. He's not providing something no one else is really in, like, for example, scoring. There's, there's just no reason for him to be an NHL regular at this point in time. He's not forcing anyone's hand. And if he goes in the AHL, he can at least put in a much stronger showing down there as opposed to playing fourth line minutes. The last thing you want is like the 
the Tyler Watherspoon treatment from a few seasons ago where he's just up for, you know, 20 or 30 games basically doing nothing. Would you rather have Jankowski playing regularly? Would you rather have Jankowski playing regularly, say, alongside Andrew Mangiapane or Garnet Hathaway? Of the former. (laughs) Mangiapane. He kind of plays with Garnet Hathaway regardless if he's in the AHL or the NHL, so... We're talking different types of players. I'm sure at some point we'll see a, an NHL line, hopefully, of Andrew Mangiapane, Mark Jankowski, and Matt somebody. Phillips. Matt Phillips, yeah. <laughs> These two tiny people that will like slide through Mark's legs and score goals. It'll be wonderful. This is a dick joke again, like Hartley tried to do during one of his first seasons here when he put uh, Gaudreau and Byron alongside Colborne. What, really? Yeah. That was, he made yeah, dick. he's like, oh, we call it the Tower and Two Timbits. Like, no, dude, you're making a dick joke. Very Freudian. No, I was just, to- I've always wanted to see like a tiny player skate through his teammates' legs and score a goal. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think it's what the NHL needs. Um, but moving along here, do you guys want to talk about Chad Johnson or Chris Versteeg? Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. So back in the dick jokes. <laughs> I know it's only it's going to be December tomorrow, but could Chad Johnson be one of the best things to happen in the 2016 calendar year for this team? Yes. Succinct. But yeah. Um, let's see. He has a .930 save percentage in all situations currently, which is pretty much the best of his career other than the .954 he had over four games with the Coyotes. Uh, he's up. 10 percentage points from last year with the Sabres. Caveat, he played 45 games then, so we still have a long ways to go. He currently has a .938 save percentage at even strength. That's tied with Braden Holtby. You know, Vesna winner Braden Holtby. And that is among goalies who have played at least 10 games this season. Eighth. Tied for eighth in the NHL in even strength save percentage. If you want to go over like nine games, because there's a couple of them, then it's 10th. So basically, Chad Johnson right now is a top 10 goalie. And he's doing it for what? Pennies on the dollar, basically. 1.7 million, which is the highest cap hit he has ever had. Pretty shrewd move by the Flames, because like, I actually, my dad wanted to know like was, where Chad Johnson was from, and I was actually like, surprised to learn that he actually, he's been with five teams in the past five years. It's like, Every time he's just been stuck behind someone who just has been going nuts. Like he got first stopping Coyote in with the with the Phoenix Coyotes, where he uh, hit where Mike Smith had that one magical season. They went to Boston, got stuck behind Tuukka Rask, had the bad year with the Islanders, and then like last year with Buffalo, like he was really good and no one talked about him. And the Flames picked him up, and it was just, just perfect. Because Buffalo was terrible, and Robin Liner was supposed to be their starter. He got injured early on, which led to Johnson getting a lot of ice time. And it's like, oh, he's handling not quite a starter's workload, but more than an average backup's workload. And he's doing very well behind a team that's really bad. George's is in their top four. Josh George's is Chris Russell. <laughs> Say that kindly. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think anybody would ever dispute that. One. Uh, this is probably one of the more interesting facts, in, but... I mean, he's only played you know a handful of games, but he's got the highest uh, even strength. Uh, sorry, I guess five versus five low danger save percentage in the league, like hundred percent. So out of every low danger yeah. shot that's just casually thrown at the net, 
he hasn't let one in four, five, six, seventh in the league right now in mid like mid danger save percentage right now, and uh, he's slowly rebounding in his high danger save percentage. He's still, you know, among the uh, the lower end of the the goalies there with Brian Elliott and Yaroslav Halak. But the fact that he's just putting it together, pretty much night in and night out. This is we haven't really seen stable goaltending like this what since two thousand eight, like Kipper. I, yeah, like vintage Kipper. What was the last bad goal he went in, let in? That What's the last bad goal he let in? Like that one against Chicago, which admittedly did cost them at least a point, but it's not a bad track record because every goalie screws up. Yeah, I think, uh, just off the top of my head, I think you're right because every other goal that he's let in, he's either fought against it or something happened that you know was out of his control. It was just a really great shot. He's not you know letting in stinkers from weird angles or anything like that. He's fighting for every puck and... We saw a bit of that tonight, and he just effortlessly put on a... Perf- I, I mean, I should say effortlessly, but there's a lot of situations where he just looks so calm and relaxed and zen- like, adds, like at peace with himself. And he's like, oh, got to make a save. Oh, got to stick my leg out casually here and make a couple others. Oh, hey, this rookie everyone's freaking out about is on a breakaway on me. Well, that's the thing to do, I guess. <laughs> just handles it like he has no problems with anything around him so i guess that kind of begs the question if he can keep this up do you like do you see him and he's from here like that's a nice story he's getting his chance to be a starter in the city where he grew up for the team he grew up cheering for that's cool big and local (laughs) yeah and good yeah (laughs) the new big and local and uh that means we will I'll have to update the uh, the old photoshopped image of uh, Joe Colborn is big and local, and I'll change it to Chad Johnson is big and local. Other Chad Johnson, NFL or former NFL Chad Johnson, is taking notice for some reason. So he's not as good as big and local here, that's for sure. And <laughs> he's a he seems like an actual role model, somebody you could actually look up to. I kind of want to maybe we should close on Christopher Steig here, just because we're going with the big and local theme. Um, Christopher Little Steig. and local. Yeah, little and local. Like, it's hard to imagine that Christopher Stieg at this point in his career is still in the NHL, given you know what he's been through injury-wise and you know ups and downs performance-wise and things like that. But he he came in off that PTO in Edmonton, and outside of the the brief you know injuries there, where he kind of exploded like uh, you know David Jones would if he fell down. Seven points in 16 games. He does. Ju- he just does so many wonderful things in the offensive zone that kind of go a little bit unnoticed, you know, with passing and distributing the puck and finding weird seams to work in. And again, you know, it's going to be December. We're only a few months into season, but if June rolls around or July rolls around and he, he put up, you know, decent numbers, like how can you not want to resign this guy for super cheap? Because what he's doing is what you want in the modern NHL, which is, you know, cheap depth who provide measurable impacts on ice and make you're better for having them in the lineup. And like, what do you, how do you guys feel about that? His last cap hit before this season, the PTO was 2.2 million, AKA Lance Boma money. Who would you rather have in the lineup? Tiny and local. (laughs) (laughs) Resign him, protect him, expose Broward. I would do that. Yeah. I have to just check what how many Brower has scored. He's only got 10 points in 10 more games than Drew Yep. And just, I guess, 
they're using Briar as a pounding killer, and that's his only additional value over Versteeg, but otherwise just... Can Versteeg kill penalties too? I'm pretty sure everyone can kill penalties, it's just, it's like the, they just always like the bigger guys. Uh, there was a time when Christopher Versteeg was pretty good on the, the penalty kill back in Chicago. 2008-2009, uh, he had four shorthanded goals and uh, seven total points, and the season after that, he put up another three goals in the, the penalty kill, and he's just been slowly weaned off of it. I'm not sure if that's injuries and or a diminished value on in terms of like shot metrics or goal metrics and stuff like that. But like Christian's point, you can pretty much put anybody on the penalty kill so long as they, they adhere to the system that you guys are working in, and they can provide some sort of measurable impact. I mean, if you wanted to try to maximize this value, you could do that, but the... The reason why I brought him up and the reason why it's kind of an interesting thought of resigning him if he can put these numbers up, it's the fact that you could legitimately try and prolong him um, just to offset the age curve. Because, I mean, he's 30 right now. He'll finish the season at 31 years of age, and he's got a bum, pel- uh, a bum groin and knee <laughs> problems. and. <laughs> I'm sorry, just bum groin is hilarious. (laughs) He's got Martin Havlick groin right now, right? And you could actually start adapting maybe an NBA strategy, which is you could just scratch him some games, you know, healthy scratch. And if you're paying, you know, under a million dollars, you know, or sub $2 million, and you can get 60 games out of him at, you know, 30, you know, 35 points, like that's still great value. Like, and that's better than most players can put up consistently. And that's kind of been his career average. And if you looked over his trajectory, especially in uh, the last few years, like Chicago and Carolina um, and part of LA last season, like he played about 60 games, he put up, you know, 30 ish points per season. And those are really acceptable. And it's just an, maybe an interesting way to prolong whatever value who he has be, until the wheels completely fall off and, you know, the masking tape holding his groin together falls apart. just want to add, he's not like a Troy Brower 30 points where he just somehow gets 30 points while being a bad underlying player. Like, he was really good underlying numbers. I should probably pull them up right now, but throughout his career, he's just always been puck mover. Just I So I have it actually open right now. So at the moment, at even strength... He's uh, 47.33% Corsi 4. Um, struggled a bit, but, you know, only played... It's relative. Negative uh, 2.23. Really? Maybe to redo myself here, I'm just going to look at his career stats. So besides his, um, like, really, really bad year in Florida, 2012-2013, where he only played, like, 10 games because of injury, like, he's always been a positive rel- relative Corsi 4 guy. Like, last year, he was plus five split between Carolina and L.A. He can just... if and Like, he can just move the puck, and he's always been doing that. If they can... As Mike said, like, if you can just get that value out of him for 60 games a night, 60 games a year for when he's 31, like, why wouldn't you go for that? And it's on not a, going to be expensive. Yeah, like... Sub like a sub two million dollar contract, you get sixty games. You try and get twenty thirty points out of him. If it doesn't work, you just waive him or you just play him less, right? Like at that point, like he's probably going to know that his time in the NHL is diminished, and you know he could even get insurance to play overseas before he came back to the NHL this summer. And it's I, I feel like that's one area that maybe more GMs and teams could start exploiting, which is just taking these aging guys and prolonging as much value because nobody's gonna, nobody's going to grow up to be a yager, right? And even his wheels have fallen off this season, and 
you look at former flame and wonderful human being Jerome McGinley, and he's struggling to keep mm-hmm. up with the age curve, right? So there, there obviously mm-hmm. there's gonna be a point where you have to say you cut your ties or you know say like you can't do it anymore. But a guy like Vestig, he's putting up points. He's presumably a good guy in the room. I think from everything that has been published online or accounts, and he seems like a decent player on ice. <laughs> I mean, we can measure it. So and he's local. So. Uh, on that note of talking about the two extremes of local, big and tiny, uh, I think we're going to call this a show. So, as usual, you can check us out on flamesnation.ca. You can check us out on Twitter at, at flamesnation, facebook.com slash flames, capital N. I'm Mike Vail. Uh, I'm yeah. Ari. Hi. Bye. I'm, I'm Christian. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you guys next week.